Soft Engineering Radio, episode 141, Second Life with Jim Purbrick. This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio brings you relevant and detailed discussions and interviews on software engineering topics every two weeks. Thanks to our audience and the partners listed on our website for supporting the podcast. Welcome listeners to another episode of Software Engineering Radio. Uh, Another one recorded at Jau 2008 in Aarhus, Denmark. This time we are talking about Second Life and about um, how .NET was used as a VM for the scripting language used within Second Life. And our guest today is Jim Perbrick. Hi, Jim. Hello. Welcome to the show. Um, so before we get started on the topic, uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners. I'm Jim Perbrick. I'm a technical director at Linden Lab. Uh, and in Second Life, I'm known as Babbage Linden. Okay, is it Linden Labs or Linden Lab? It's Linden Lab. Lab, okay. I thought, I was, thought it was Linden Labs. Good, learned something already. So, um, I guess most people know about Second Life. I mean, you probably couldn't avoid this if you're somehow part of the IT community. But, but, but please give you know a short overview of what, what Second Life is all about. The Second Life is a very large online virtual world, um, a bit like EverQuest or World of Warcraft, except um, unlike EverQuest or World of Warcraft, it's not a game. Uh, there are no goals created by Linden Lab. There are no quests. There are no levels. Um, what you decide to do in Second Life is completely up to you. Uh, and also, the other thing that makes it really different is that um, it's a 3D virtual world that's completely created by the people that use it. So all the clothes and cars and helicopters and spaceships and houses, everything you see in Second Life um, is made by the residents of Second Life. And uh, Linden Lab, we work on the technology, the platform underneath uh, Second Life. Mm -hmm. And although we're obviously not a business podcast, the question is, how do you make money if you don't do anything? I mean, what's, <laughs> what's the business model behind uh, Second Life? At the moment, the business model is primarily a web hosting model. So um, if you want to visit Second Life, right. um, you can do that for free, just like you could visit a website for right. free. Mm -hmm. But if you want to host some content in Second Life, if you want some land for a castle or a space station or a disco or whatever, <laughs> then um, then you have to uh, you have to buy some land off somebody and then you have to pay a regular maintenance fee on ah. that land which is the same as a web hosting fee mm -hmm. and you can either buy that land from other people in second life who resell it or you can buy it from linden lab are there more analogies between the second life universe and the internet as a collection of servers i mean you, you brought up this mapping like you have to buy land in the same sense as you have to buy a domain in the internet is there, is there more analogies um so in some ways it's different. So Second Life is a contiguous space. Um, so as more people want to buy more land, that either that gets created at the edges of the Second Life world. So it either gets created as more regions that are attached to mainland continents in Second Life, or you can buy an island out in the sea that's not connected to anything. Mm -hmm. But but either way, Second Life is a you can you can put it on a map and you can say you know this this location is is east or west or north or south of of another uh, location. So in that way, it's not like the web. The yep. web is a is a network like a spider's web, um, where you can go from anywhere to anywhere else, and no websites yeah. are particularly closer Close, or further yeah. away than anywhere else. Now, in Second Life, you can give people landmarks to destinations in Second Life, which allow you to teleport instantly between the two. That's the so URL, you, right? Yeah, so you can create <laughs> references to places in, in Second Life. Yeah. And one of, the, one of the recent projects we've done is to allow um, people to give URLs to places in Second Life to people who haven't got Second Life accounts yet, and then they ah. can go and create a Second Life account and teleport immediately to the destination mm -hmm. that was given mm -hmm. to them by their friend or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, before we talk a little bit more about the technology behind it, which is, of course, the idea of this podcast, um, 
what are some of the maybe not so obvious applications or reasons why people buy land in, in, in Second Life? Uh, for example, NPR Science Friday has an island there, I know. Um, what are some of the other noteworthy um, things or, or, or stuff you can find in Second Life that you maybe wouldn't expect? Okay, so primarily people use Second Life for socializing. So people have nightclubs and discos and, and you know all kinds of fun things to do in Second Life, places to hang out. But also people use it for um, simulation and training. So I know there was uh, somebody built a, a, um, a replica of a petrol station so mm -hmm. they could teach people how to you know, use a petrol station, fill it up with petrol, use all the, all the machinery in there. Um, people have used it for creating visualizations that describe how jet engines work and various other things. Mm -hmm. So you can use it for learning. Um, and you can also use it as a classroom. So you can get people on a distance learning course can get together in Second Life yeah. and they can uh, they can uh, they can learn stuff. Um, also, you can uh, people use it for role playing. So although most of the online virtual worlds are um, kind of fantasy men in tights kind of virtual worlds, there are lots of kind of long tail um, environments, fantasy environments people can play with, like um, you know vampire worlds or steampunk worlds that people yeah. have created inside Second Life. Yeah. So in some ways, despite Second Life not being a game, in other ways some of the kind of more deep role playing that happens in virtual worlds or happens in small parts of second life yeah so if i if i compare this to some of the old text adventures that might have been you know also online with many people uh joining in the same world then um there is an obvious difference and that is the 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 immersive character the the the, the well the virtual reality which technological advantages have made it possible to build those you know highly graphical uh, environments for people as opposed to having stupid text adventures. Okay, so text adventures um, obviously are much lower bandwidth. Yeah. So one of the things that needed to happen um, for for Second Life to become big and popular was was for broadband to become widely available. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the technologically one of the big differences with Second Life is because people make the world. Um, w there is no there's no predefined content that you can burn onto a DVD and, right. and give to people. Yeah. So, so you just distribute a runtime client kind of thing? Yeah, so the, we, we, there's a client you download, but then all the content is streamed yeah. down to your machine. And that requires yeah. a much higher bandwidth connection than if you're playing something like um, EverQuest or World of Warcraft, where all that's mm -hmm. being sent to your machine is, uh, is position updates right. and, and all the graphic data is actually mm -hmm. already, on your, mm -hmm. already on your hard drive, having been copied from a DVD. So you needed broadband um, for, for Second Life to happen. Um, we also benefited from, from the kind of cheap co-location that happened after the first dot-com bust yeah. because uh, you know, we could get bandwidth cheap and co-location cheap which was important because Second Life requires an enormous amount of horsepower and an enormous amount of, um, of networking bandwidth and so yeah. we, we definitely uh, we definitely helped from that but also um, it was when Second Life was released was just around the time when uh, when 3D hardware graphics processors were becoming um, were becoming powerful enough for you to render a compelling 3D virtual world yeah. that didn't have to be carefully optimized and, and, yep. and pre-processed in the way that the dooms and the quakes were. So you yeah. could make a kind of freeform virtual world out of boxes built by um, people who weren't expert 3D artists yep. and, uh, and it would still look reasonable on someone's, uh, someone's uh, PC when they rendered it. So if you're calling this a virtual world, of course, then there is always the question about the physics. How realistic is it? And, you know, the kind of opposite of the question, should it be realistic or do you want people to be able to fly? You know, how much realism is, how much online calculation of physical laws maybe is the question how much is there in it okay so there's um uh the second life server uses um the havoc um physics engine to do 
the kind of position updates, movement updates of, of the physical objects in the world. Now, some objects, you can mark objects in Second Life as physical, which means they'll fall to the floor, they'll crash into each other, and they'll behave as if they're physical objects. You mm -hmm. can also say that objects are phantom, which means you can move through them yeah. and no collision happens. Or you can just have regular objects, which aren't physical and will hang in the middle of the air, right. but you'll still bounce off them. Um, and so, so Havoc is used for most of the physics, but then we also let people fly because why not if you could let people fly <laughs> sure. why don't let people fly and if yeah. you, you know and if and then we also let people teleport because it's just an easy way of getting around yeah and so you're kind of you're you're there's a tension between between giving something giving people something that makes sense to them and is easy to comprehend and yeah. something that allows all these um you know kind of alternative universes to exist as well yeah so and so you know second life is on a human scale so you have a you have ground that you can walk in and you can go into buildings and so on it's not spaceships it's not um, yep. it's not galaxies it's a kind of land <coughs> and uh, a continent that human scale things can wander around um, but you can also build you know castles in the sky and you can fly around and you can mm -hmm. teleport so there is there's some real world physics but there's also um, there's some fantasy physics where it makes sense um, and it just makes things easier yeah. and it's probably also the challenge that if you try to simulate everything that this would require too much horsepower on the server side right I mean if you try to simulate the airflow around in a virtual airplane and stuff yeah, that's right. So, you know, there was um, uh, the uh, Andrew and Philip, who the to the um, to the uh, first people who worked on Second Life, have a physics background, and so their mm -hmm. idea was that you know th this thing would just would simulate physics, and so if you wanted to make an airplane, you would you'd make a plane and you'd give it some thrust and you'd right. you'd, you'd calculate the air over the wing. Yeah. If you wanted to make a catapult, you'd make it out of wood and you'd apply tension to the wood, and that would creates yeah. some energy that yeah. you could then release to make the, right. the uh, a rock fly through the air. Um, and so that's just, that isn't possible even now with yeah. the, the physics that we have. But also there are lots of things. <laughs> you mean with the, the machines we the, have? The machines Probably we have. won't change yeah. the physics. Yeah. <laughs> the, the machines we have are still not, not really up for that, especially yeah. on a commercial scale. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but there are also things that you want to do that don't make any sense with any kind of physics. So, for example, there are scripted um, interactive objects in Second Life where you go up to them, you click on them, and they give you a, a note card, or you go up to them and yeah, you pay sure. them, and they work as a vendor. So there are things that you want to be able to have interactive yeah. Yeah. that don't make any sense at all in, in yeah. terms of physics. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, let's say, you know, server-side backend that you're using. Um, how many boxes, how many machines, how many hard disks? Give us some some feeling for for the kinds of systems you have in the background. It's always difficult to do these numbers because they're always changing. We sure, always racking up new servers and, and plugging them into the And by the time the we publish that, it's probably outdated. Right, anyway, absolutely. So, it doesn't so matter. it's but it's somewhere in the region of I think seven thousand um, Debian hosts running regions in Second Life, mm -hmm. and then we have. Um, dozens of machines running MySQL databases, and we have um, machines running websites and load balancers, yeah. and, uh, uh, and and miscellaneous other stuff as well. Um, so yeah, in the order of kind of seven thousand machines running. And, and how are, how is the system partitioned? I imagine if you have this big world and people move around in this world, you want to kind of reduce the amount of data replication between the machines. So I guess the partitioning aspect is kind of important to keep it scalable. How did you solve that? Mark? Yeah. So one of the primary ways in which Second Life scales is that it chops the world up into into square regions that form a grid so mm -hmm. um, each process um, each simulation process will simulate a uh, 256 by uh, 256 meter um, uh, region of the world and then you plug them together so that when you when mm -hmm. you walk to you know when you walk uh, several hundred meters in, in one direction you'll move from one region to another and that'll happen transparently mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
And so that's one of the ways in, in, in which we scale. We can just we can keep growing the world by just adding more servers. And, so one and server per region or yeah. something. Well, so we have um, we we currently run dual dual core machines, mm -hmm. and so we run four uh, region simulation processes on each of those machines. So every time we add a new host uh, to the the Second Life um, yeah. uh, grid, we we can add four regions on that host. Mm -hmm. or, uh, we've we've just released a new type of kind of low um, performance. Um, open space region, which actually we run 16 of those on a single host. Okay. Um, but the nice thing about that is that most of the facilities that you need to um, process that region come with that host. So you can just buy a new box, plug it in, and it scales. Yeah. Now there are some um, there are some services in Second Life which don't work like that. For example, if you created a world where you have um, all these, you know, this entire world spread across many different machines, you still want to be able to do things like find your friends so that I you can go and meet them. And that requires some kind of centralized yeah, service. Indexing, yeah. query kind of thing. W yeah. Where you can query. Yeah. Um, so those things are those things are scaled in different ways and they, they use kind of layers of caching and the yeah. same kind of systems that you use to scale uh, other kind of um, centralized indexing yeah. systems. Yeah, yeah. So with ca which operating systems, which la uh, programming languages are involved there? What is it written in? Uh, so we use um, Debian um, Linux yeah. on our hosts, yeah. um, and then the simulation process and the um, and the uh, the client, which is the viewer, the fat client, uh, are written in C plus ah, um, okay. So we use uh, OpenGL for the graphics and various other open um, APIs for the on the viewer, which means we can run the viewer on um, on Linux and Windows and, and the Mac. And then on the server side. Um, we use um, we use C++ again for the simulator, but we also have web services written in Python on top of Apache. And uh, so the idea there is that you will have this C++ simulation um, process doing the actual 3D virtual world simulation. But then we'll also have web services that do the kind of um, inventory management, group management, and the yeah. things that don't need to be happening in real time. So, <coughs> so. <laughs> Everything is web-based today, right? And of course, you are in some sense web-based, but you don't run in the browser. Do you think there is a time real soon where browsers and the JavaScript engines become fast enough to run the client, the Second Life client in the browsher? Um, and and is, this, is, this if, is this even desirable or is this, doesn't this make sense? Well, so, so there are, there's, there's a lot of talk about running, running virtual worlds in, in a browser at the moment, um, but you don't currently yet see much meaningful communication between the web browser itself and the virtual world. So yeah. although you get um, a virtual world window in your web browser, what that really means is you have extra user interface around your virtual world right. that you'd rather not have. Yeah. And one of the problems with virtual worlds anyway, when you're using a, when you're trying to navigate a 3D virtual world on a, um, on a laptop or desktop screen is that you don't have the field of view that you'd require. So yeah. you have to end up building far more open spaces in um, virtual worlds than you would have to build in real life just because it's difficult to navigate because it's like you're walking around with blinkers on yeah, anyway yeah, yeah. and then you put it into a, into a browser as well and then you've, you've cut down the real yeah. estate further so it'll be interesting to see if um, you know if you can have compelling reasons to have it in the in the web browser obviously it's a it's an easier delivery system um, but uh, you know, at the moment, we're still really seeing fat clients embedded in browsers. You still yeah. have to download an enormous piece of software, and right. you still have to say, "Do you trust this piece of software, which is generally written in C++ or C, yeah. so it can access um, access the graphics card via OpenGL?" It will be interesting to see what happens when we get kind of 3D graphics APIs for um, for the kind of standard web platforms like Flash and Silverlight and, well, wasn't there and JavaScript. Something called Vermal a long time ago. Virtual reality markup language. <laughs> yeah, and that's so that I mean, Vermal, Vermal was um, a similar thing. You would yeah. download a, a right, plugin right, which would right, run in your browser, right, and right. it would it would uh, 
it would render a 3D virtual world. Yeah. Now, Vermal was a standard for uh, 3D um, 3D scene description language, but yeah. it turns out that you need more than a 3D scene yeah. description language to have yeah. a virtual world. You yeah, need sure. avatars, you need communication, you need a bunch of other stuff as yeah. well. So how much of the actual overall processing is, ran, is run on the client? I guess obviously there is rendering. What else happens on the client? For example, behavior scripts, run, do they run on the client or on the server? So the scripted um, actions that you, you add to your objects to make them interactive all run on the server. Mm -hmm. um, the client is mostly rendering, it's called the viewer, it's mostly viewing the, the 3D scene. Yep. Um, it's kind of running animations, it's showing, um, it's showing, um, it's rendering audio, it's potentially rendering video streams that are embedded in the virtual world, it's potentially rendering um, web pages that are embedded in the virtual world. Um, so if you assume you had an animation where, you, I don't know, I don't know, you have a clock which kind of runs in circles, is it like you send to the client a command that says, here is a graphical primitive, animate it please? Or do you literally send every frame, do you stream every frame from the server to the client? You send a, you send a stream of updates okay. from the server to the client. Okay. Now, it would be really interesting if uh, in the future you could have some scripts which run on the server and some scripts which ran on the client yeah. so that then in the case of the clock you can uh, you could just send a piece of behavior to yeah. the client which would update the scene on the client yeah. instead of the yeah. server um, that gets more complicated and it's something we haven't done yet um, okay. but certainly it's something to consider for the future it, it's certainly something that would help to scale but i guess by the time you might implement that bandwidth is free and then why not stream <laughs> well so at the moment you can you could implement a clock on the server and it will look roughly okay when you when you look at it on yeah. the viewer although I, I, rem I, I remember reading something where you say well what was this that there was that there is sailboats in in uh, in second life for various reasons but one reason is that sailboats actually move rather slowly and that goes together well with the streaming so if you have something that moves very quickly and needs to interact very quickly i guess some more behavior implementation on the client could be useful yeah i mean so if you want to have kind of twitchy twitchy um, games and things like yeah. um, you know m motorsports and um, and kind of first-person shooter style games. Yeah. Um, you have to do lots of interesting things on the client to kind of mask the latency yeah. and mask the fact that not everybody's seeing the same thing. Yeah. But yeah, if you're using a sailboat, then it doesn't matter that all your behavior is running on the server, <laughs> and because the updates are happening at a slow enough rate, um, you can y everyone has a far more in sync version of the um, <laughs> of the uh, 3D view. Yeah. Okay, um, one aspect that you uh, mentioned before is this user creation thing. So all the content, all the structures, all the behavior is built by users. So before we talk about behavior scripting, which is kind of the main point of this discussion, um, how do I have to imagine the interactive in-world building of structures? How does this work? Um, so th th this is actually one of the really compelling things about Second Life. You have a kind of magic wand when you go into Second Life. And if mm -hmm. you go to somewhere where you have permission to create stuff, you basically just point at the floor and you say, new. And it creates you a box. And then you can turn that box into a sphere or a toroid or a different primitive shape. And you can stretch it and you can twist it. You can cover it in textures. You can then copy it, line it up with other things, um, create other primitives and, and combine them together into more complex shapes. So mm -hmm. if you were to make a car in, in Second Life, you know, prim a, a really simple car, you might start off with, with uh, a shape you turn into a cylinder for a wheel and then you might copy that three times to get you the four wheels right. and then you might create a box in the middle yeah. um, to be the body of the car and then you might link them together and that would give you a car. Then you'd go and you'd upload some textures um, from your local machine and use that to effectively paint the car to texture it and mm -hmm. then you'd have your, your 3D car.
Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like a 3D CAD program inside the, the virtual world, right? Yeah, except it's somewhat more accessible. Yeah. And the other, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. And the other thing that's happening is it's collaborative. So you can ah. get together with, with two or three friends and you can, you can build stuff together and it becomes a social activity. Cool. And one of the really nice things to do in Second Life is to go to one of the sandboxes and just wander around and see the stuff that people are creating. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then you'll see someone doing something interesting with particle effects and you can go and say, oh, you know, what are you doing with particle effects there? Or, or you might be building something and you can see someone else in the same sandbox building something that, that uses some aspect of, of Second Life that you want to be able to learn how to do. So you wander over and go and say, you know, I'm making this thing and I can, I can see that you know how to do this particular bit. Can you tell me how to do it? So that kind of, the social collaborative building um, in Second Life is, is, is a really big thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not like a transaction in the sense that as long as you build something, it's not visible in the world, then it pops in. Rather, the building itself, as you build it, is visible to everybody else. Yeah, that's right. Cool, yeah. Um, so that was structure. Um, of course, to make a compelling virtual world, you also need to somehow model or describe or build or create behavior. How do you do that? So if we go back to the car example, um, you've, you've created the car, it's got four wheels and a body, um, but basically it's just a dumb lump of stuff. Yep. You, you'll bounce off it, it won't do anything. Um, so in order to make it behave like a car, you need to add some, um, add some interactive behavior to it. And you do that in Second Life by adding a script to the to the primitives that you've made, to the objects that you've made. So you would you'd you'd get your car which you've linked together into um, into a single object and you'd you'd click on it and you say, okay, I want to add a script to it. Um, and then you get a, 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 a text editor which looks like a, a little IDE embedded in the browser and it has a skeleton script that you can edit. So you might change it so that when you touch the car, um, the door opens and your avatar gets inside. And so the way you do that is you would implement an event handler in your little script to say, when I've been touched, um, yeah. kind of animate the car door open and then um, move the uh, move the avatar inside and then um, you know make a make an engine starting noise and yeah. then take over the controls of the avatar right. or whatever it is that you wanted to do. Yeah. Um, then you might add a bunch of other um, event handlers which said, okay, now I've taken over the controls of the avatar. Um, when I detect that they're hitting forward on the uh, on the keypad, instead of moving their avatar forward, move the whole car forward, right. um, um, and then you'll you'll send some commands to the physics to give your um, your car um, forces in different directions right. to move it around the virtual world. And uh, well, of course, uh, I'm a big uh, advocate of domain-specific languages. So of course, the obvious question is: Is there a what's the scripting language like? How much 3D world domains or behavior description specificness is in this language, or is it a generic language like Python or Ruby? It's a general purpose language. Uh, it's C-like. Um, it has uh, very few primitive types. It has, um, it has, so some of the 3D specific stuff is it has um, primitive types for vectors and quaternions. So you mm -hmm. can describe positions and you can describe rotations in right. virtual worlds um, it, using the primitive types. But beyond that, it's, it's basically a, a general purpose C-like language. Yeah. It's uh, event driven. So unlike a, a C program, you don't just get told to run your main Yep. Um, function you actually get told you can implement um, event handlers which will then be automatically wired up um, mm -hmm. to the runtime so it will tell you when you're getting different events and so on there is also I think I remember um, primitives for state based behavior yeah so that's that's kind of interesting um, because it's a, it's a kind of it, it allows you to do things very easily like um, modeling systems which can have different states so you can yeah. if you're building a door you might have one state for when it's open one state for when it's closed and then you can flick back and yeah. forth as people touch it yeah. depending on which state it's in so that can be handy as well yeah so um 
of course, if you have a language, the question is always, how is it executed? Is it uh, compiled? Is it interpreted? How do you handle this? Well, so up until very recently, um, the Linden scripting language, LSL, was, um, was uh, interpreted. Um, so we would compile it. You'd write your source code. You'd click compile. That would actually compile the, um, the source code into some bytecode on your client, and then it would ship the bytecode to um, Second Life. And then um, inside the simulator process, the simulator would would uh, interpret the mm -hmm. bytecode inside that yeah. um, inside that uh, piece of bytecode we shipped yeah. to the server. Yeah, and uh, that is where you ran into certain um, uh, problems, let's say, uh, regarding performance, scalability, threading, and stuff, right? Yeah. So um, the the big one of the big problems with um, with LSL. Uh, the LSL virtual machine is it's incredibly slow. Yeah. Um, so you could build simple scripts that would allow you to make your objects interactive. You could make scripts that would respond to a click by giving someone a note card and so on. But there are some applications in Second Life like um, artificial intelligence, pathfinding, um, procedure generation, um, which would run far too slowly to be to be um, viable yeah. inside Second Life. Um, and so the problems with the language were that it didn't have some things that people expected like... Um, uh, arrays and exceptions and objects and all that good stuff that you get with modern programming languages and the way it had been implemented made it very difficult to add those um, those features to the um, to the language so and that's when you decided to uh, to use uh, the .NET CLI or CLR common language runtime as, as the backend right yeah so we actually used the mono open source implementation right. of, the, okay. of the CLI yeah. um, because we all our backend is, Obviously, in, yeah. is on Debian so we can't actually use yeah. .NET and uh, so the rest of the discussion is uh, talking a little bit about the uh, challenges in, in doing that and also the, the, the benefits. You got basically a, <laughs> a vast performance improvement. Why don't you run us through the, through the things you had to tweak or, or change or optimize to make this a viable solution? So the, the biggest problem um, with using a standard virtual machine uh, like .NET or, or the JVM um, for things like Second Life is that uh, because the world is partitioned into these um, into these different regions, you have to be able to migrate running programs between right. between uh, processes. So if you've written your car and your avatar's sitting in it and he puts his foot down, um, he's only going to have to drive a few hundred meters before he has to transfer to uh, a different process. And yeah. that means the avatar needs to be simulated by a different process. The car does. And the scripts that are running in the car also need to be simulated by a different process. So you, as you make that transition across the boundary, as well as handing off an avatar and some objects, you also need to hand off a running script from one um, process to another and that's that's very difficult to do in in things like .NET now you can serialize the object right so you could have a script which is represented by .NET object you can serialize it you can send it somewhere else and you can deserialize it but the problem is you may have some state on the stack that you need to transfer halfway um, you know to transfer halfway through execution so it's in LSL it's um, it's legitimate to write a, um, a script which is effectively an infinite loop that, that, that sits right. there that's the thing. Uh, if you wrote the code in a way that is inherently re-entrant, for mm -hmm. example, through state machines yep. or something, yep. then you wouldn't have that problem because it's stackless. Right. So what? Yeah. Ah, right. So one way you could do it is you could you could build it in a kind of trampoline way, right. where you don't allow any um, any looping primitives or any infinitely recursive yes. primitives. And so you could, for example, imagine a, a, a scripting language for a virtual world which lets you um, lets you run a portion of code and then return a function pointer to a new right. to the next function yeah. to run and Yield, then that, right yeah. and then that would be a that would be like a trampoline right and so you could via that trampolining you could either you know you could return a um, you could return a pointer to the same function 
to implement a loop yeah. where you could return a pointer to a different function right. to make a call or whatever. Yeah. But you give the infrastructure a chance to take the thing at the point where this, where, where, when you return this, this pointer, you can take it, put it somewhere else and run it there. Yeah, that's Th right. I know that uh, some of the early cooperatively scheduled mobile phone operating systems had to be well, the applications for those had to be implemented that way. Mm -hmm. And so, so what you're doing is that you allow people to write, let's say, sequential procedural ordinary programs. Yep. And that require and, and still you want to be able to transfer those and including their stack. Yeah, that's right. So how do you do this? So the way the way we've done it is that um, is that we we compile our um, Linden scripting language into a standard .NET um, assembly. Um, so it's a chunk of a chunk of CLI assembly yep. and then we have another process which looks at that code and it injects um, micro-threading effectively yield points cooperative multi-threading points into that assembly mm -hmm. and the way it does that is very similar to the way that dotnet does bytecode verification it looks through the method and it works out every point in the method what is on the stack and then so if we know at every point in the method what's on the stack if we figure out we need to add a yield point because for example the method might be doing a backwards jump so it could continue looping then uh, at that point we go okay do we need to yield do we need to stop because we, we're migrating to a different process yep. and if so we can jump to an extra bit of code that we inject into the method which which um, pops all the things off the stack that are on the stack puts yep. them into an object on the heap which can then be serialized with the script and right. sent somewhere else cool and, and why do you call this Maybe everybody calls this, and I don't know. Why is this called micro-threading? Um, because w one of the things that gets you as well as migration is is kind of um, uh, cooperative um, user-level threading, um, but for for untrusted code. Right. Uh, and so you know, it's not you're not using a full thread to yeah. run every yeah. to run every single script. You're using a kind of a cooperative. Uh, micro-threading approach mm -hmm. it's i mean the other the other thing i mean basically what you're doing is you're capt capturing the continuation right yeah yeah uh, that's the word the, i've been uh, looking for before right yeah, yeah yeah for the uh for the program yeah uh, so one of the things we've done in order to make this migration work is that yeah. we've kind of basically implemented continuations in the dotnet framework right yeah that's a, a very good way to describe it yeah okay the second challenge you you mentioned is uh well you didn't mention it here in the podcast yet but when preparing this thing um is unloading of uh of parts of the scripting of, of the scripts and stuff why is this a problem and how did you attack it well this is um so this is this is this wouldn't be a problem with the jvm um so what what happens in the jvm is that uh, if you stop using a type and you're no longer referencing it from anywhere in the system then it will get automatically unloaded so it's not about objects it's about the type definitions that's right so when you when you create a script uh, and you compile it and then you load it into the simulator you're loading an assembly into the simulator's memory um, and then it's instantiating a type from that assembly, um, and then that that object, the instantiation of the class in your assembly, is is run as your script. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're iteratively developing a second life application, you might, in the course of an hour, um, edit a script, save it, test it, edit it, save it, test it. All those versions that that you've tested and, and didn't work properly uh, are still loaded into the simulator's memory. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're using JVM, then the the virtual machine would go, okay, all these other ones, all these old ones are no longer referenced by anything, we can unload it. Um, .NET doesn't support that. Uh -huh. um, it's, there's, there's not a way of saying in .NET, even explicitly, unload this type. Ah, okay. So, um, but one way you can, one thing you can do in .NET is you can have application domains. And these are designed for, um, if I'm having, if I have two applications, maybe two widgets on my Silverlight 
uh, virtual machine running in my browser, um, I can unload one of them and keep the other one running in the same virtual machine. Um, so that's one way you can do unloading. So you could, in theory, you could imagine, okay, we'll give every script an right. application domain, and when the script's not running, we'll unload the application domain, right. which will also unload the code yeah. that was running that script. Well, sounds um, like it's probably not going to scale. Right. So the problem with that is that in, in, in a Second Life region, you can have 15,000 objects potentially yeah. each one of those can have one or more scripts uh, and so you don't want to have 15,000 um, application domains in yeah. a single process um, so the way we solve this problem is that we have n application domains we have a, a buckets of application domains and when you um, when we need to load code into um, the simulator we just grab the next application domain um, load the script into that and then and then it runs and then we also keep track of how many assemblies how much um, garbage code has been loaded into the each um, application domain. Once the once the domain has a certain amount of garbage code in there, we mark it as the unload domain. And mm -hmm. what that and then from that point, we're not going to load any new scripts into right. that domain. And then we're over time, over a number of frames, we're going to um, migrate the running scripts from that domain into the the other domains that right. are in the simulator. Once the um, unload domain only contains garbage scripts, then we can unload it. Right. Um, we get rid of the the code, and then we can just create a new uh, application domain in its place. Okay, so in some sense, you've impl implemented a manual garbage collector for types. Yeah, it's like a scavenging garbage right. collector. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, reminds me of the fact that we should at some point do an episode on garbage collection. Um, haven't done that yet, but it'll come at some point. <laughs> um, challenge number three, resource accounting, making sure that there are no bandwidth resource, whatever, hawks in the system. Yeah, so most virtual machines um, will um, quite happily let you allocate memory until the system tells it that there's no more memory to be allocated. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, but in Second Life, we want to be able to make sure that, well, first of all, you can't create a script in Second Life that just goes, I'm going to allocate you know tens of gigabytes of memory and, and perform a denial of service attack on that host yeah. by, just, by just filling the memory with a load of, um, with a load of junk. Um, and uh, and we also want to be able to make sure that we have some way of kind of keeping these scripts down to a size that it's actually possible to migrate right. them um, between processes in some reasonable amount of time when you're driving across a boundary or or flying across a boundary or whatever you're doing. Um, so uh, so in order to solve this, we actually used the Mono Profiling API, mm -hmm. um, and so that lets us that tells um, the profiler, which is actually part of the simulator you know some some memory has been allocated so we know the memory has been allocated we know which script is currently running and so we go okay how much memory is being allocated add that to the total memory that's been allocated by yep. this script yep. Yep. once the memory gets up once the allocated memory gets to our target limit which in the current system is 64k um, we walk the object tree um, to figure out how much memory the script is actually using because mm -hmm. it may have allocated 64k but then it may have had 32k if that um, garbage collected so it may actually only be using 32k so in this in example we'd we'd wait for it to allocate the 64k we'd walk the object tree and then we'd reset the used memory to 32k right. and we let it allocate up to 64k again um, if after we've walked the object tree it's still using more memory than we want to give it um, then we throw an exception we uh, stop the script running and we signal the fault to the user and say right. sorry you've run out of memory yep. um, uh, so this is a way of kind of emulating our current behavior with with LSL what would happen is that LSL every single script would actually be a small virtual machine it would have a 16k block of memory which would have 
the text of the script and then it would have a stack pointer and a heap pointer mm -hmm. that move towards each other. When you ran out of memory, you literally did have a stack heap collision where the two things were stomping on each other. Um, and so in order to that, emulate that behavior with, um, with Mono, we've, we've had to um, use the profiler to tell us when memory's been right. allocated yeah. Yeah. and then yeah. do this object rewalking to figure out how much memory is used. Yeah. Do you also uh, account for uh, other resources? Like what do I do? What happens if I start sending spam email? I mean, can I access, you know, email HTTP from, from those scripts? And if so, how do you check those that you don't do bad things? Yeah, so there's there's a number of different types of resources that scripts can use. Um, memory is the obvious static sure. resource. It stays in memory the whole time. But yeah. then there are also dynamic resources, which you're going to use um, every now and again. So you might you might be sending email, making HTTP requests, um, and, and and there you're using communication is a is an interesting example because you're not really using resources on your machine, but you are creating resource load on on other machines. So we can't just let scripts in Second Life send thousands of emails that then will will act as denial of service attacks on someone right. else in, somewhere else on the internet. Would be a, a very good efficient uh, botnet. Yeah. Right? So <laughs> so to stop those problems, we actually have we have throttles. So when when you can do when you can do things um, sort of instantaneously, but we want to throttle the amount of time the amount of times you can do it in a minute or whatever, then we have we have per per time frame uh, limits on it. So if yeah. you're making HTTP requests from Second Life, there are limits on the number of HTTP requests you can make a second. Even though it's not adding load to your machine, we just don't want to let you be able right. to spam um, external services at kind of infinite speed yeah. um, from the from the local machine. Yeah. So, um, looking at those hacks that you've built, although they, well, they're not hacks, but anyway, you, you kind of solved or circumvented issues that are problems or things that were missing in the in the mono and uh, in, in the mono VM. Is there any chance to potentially put those in? I mean, is there any feedback from you guys to the mono folks to maybe add those things to the to the to the platform? Well, we've been we've been working with the the mono team mainly about uh, features that um, that we've kind of been the first clients of. Um, so when we started doing this work, Mono was mostly a kind of way to do funky, rich desktop applications on, yeah. on Linux. Um, now it's being used more and more for a, a wider range of things. But things like um, uh, application domain unloading and, and verification and stuff like that, we were the kind of first clients of that. So we've been working with them on that. Um, we've also been helping them fix bugs. We've contributed unit tests and so on. Mm -hmm. But the nice thing about the things that we've been doing um, in order to make uh, Mono work in Second Life is that we haven't really needed to change Mono at all. So we haven't needed to fork Mono. We haven't yeah. needed to add features yeah. that Mono didn't want to the Mono code yeah. base. We've been able to use the standard profiling API. Yeah. We've been able to use the um, the CLI standard to do the rewriting stuff. Yeah. Um, and so really, I mean, you can use the micro-threading stuff, the continuation stuff on top of .NET, the Microsoft CLR, or on top of Mono. Right. And you can, mm -hmm. use, um, you can use the resource accounting stuff with... Um, with kind of any version of Mono using their standard profiling API. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about this is that Mono can do a new release and everything right. can go faster and it can be have bug fixes and we don't have to worry about maintaining our fork and, and so on. So what you're saying is that although you could argue that Mono is bad because it doesn't have the features you want, what you actually say is, no, no, Mono is great because it has all the hooks and frameworks and abilities for us to add those features without having to change Mono. Yeah, I mean, so we have very... Um, strange requirements for yeah. our virtual machine okay <laughs> yeah. so we we're very different uh, our, the operating environments for scripts in second life are very different from the operating um, environment of a desktop application running on windows or linux or a, or a widget running in silverlight in a browser both of those are very different to the the second life runtime environment so um it's not surprising that that there are no kind of general purpose um virtual machines that 
fit the bill perfectly right. from, from day one. Yep. But we wanted to use a general purpose virtual machine because we wanted to be able to use commonly used languages and right. we wanted to be able to leverage the, the great work that, that people like um, uh, Novell have done on Mono to, to, uh, to kind of create a just-in-time compiled very yep. fast virtual machine. So yep. on the one hand, we wanted to stop using our special purpose virtual machine because it's slow and it wasn't, very, it wasn't very easy to maintain, it wasn't very secure. We wanted to get the advantages of the efficiency of a general purpose virtual machine, but yep. we're but but we're not a kind of general standard operating environment. Yep. So by by kind of taking mono and then adapting it in this way for our environment, we've been able to get the benefits right. of, of the kind of general purpose virtual machine, but yep. we've managed to make it work in our environment. Yep. So so uh, yeah, it's a it's a good result really. So the whole reason for doing that was of course to get it more secure, more stable, and also faster. Mm -hmm. How much faster is it compared to your old one? It depends what you're doing. Um, if you're doing um, the kind of uh, very basic um, kind of touch a box and get given a note card stuff, you don't notice much speed difference at all yeah. because you're gated effectively by the library calls um, uh, and you're not actually doing any processing in the script at all. Yeah. But um, but we also, we, we ported the um, language shootout tests to LSL so we could compare the performance on um, the original LSO virtual machine and on top of... Um, Mono, and in some cases we see um, speed ups of up to two hundred times, um, not percent times, two hundred times. Okay. So yeah, we've uh, we've got one demo which um, which does the language shootout um, uh, Mandelbrot set generator mm -hmm. um, running on the original virtual machine and on and on Mono, and Mono is about two hundred times faster. Cool. And that has been rolled out into the production second life in, in the meantime. Yep. So it's now available in uh, in production, and oh. uh, there are a few issues that we're currently working hard to resolve, but. Um, but mostly it works fine. Cool. So this brings us to the end of the episode. Is there anything else you want to say? Something I forgot to ask? Something, some pearls of wisdom you want, or want to leave our listeners with or whatever? Uh, no, I'd like to thank anyone who's helped with the process of getting Mono into Second Life um, yeah. through the beta process. Thanks very much. It's been, it's been a great uh, community effort to get to where we are now. So cool. thanks very much. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Software Engineering Radio. Software Engineering Radio is an educational program brought to you by Hillside Europe. If you want more information about the podcast and all the other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. If you want to support us, you can donate to the SE Radio team via the website, or you can advertise for SE Radio, for example, by clicking on the Dick Reddit Delicious links and the slash dot button. To contact the team, please send email to team at se-radio.net, or if it is specific to an episode, please use the comments facility on the website so other people can react to your comments. This episode of SE Radio, as well as all other episodes, are licensed under the Creative Commons 2.5 license. Please see the website for details. Thanks to Charlie Crow and the Podsafe Music Network for the music used in this show. The song is called Vegas Hard Rock Shuffle.